Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. We are in the midst of an examination of the story of Scripture, and we're using the excellent book, God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Wonderful, wonderful book. Very readable, very approachable, no matter how far along you are in your Christian journey, I think you could read and profit from this book. And so we've got a link to that book uh, on our website and in the show notes. And again, encourage you guys to check that out. So the way Vaughn Roberts does it is he explores the story of Scripture through the lens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing and being led by God's king. And Vaughn Roberts traces out eight distinct phases of the kingdom throughout the story of Scripture. And this is a story that leads us to Jesus. It points us to him. It culminates in him who he is and what he's done. Each of these phases begins with a P. So we've already examined the first phase, which is the pattern of the kingdom. This is Genesis 1 and 2, how everything began good and perfect. We then looked at the perished kingdom, which is Genesis 3 through 11. This is the entrance into the, of sin and death into the world. We then looked at the promised kingdom, God's beginning of his rescue plan as he makes this outrageous promise to Abraham of people, land, and blessing. That's Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And then we're looking at the fourth phase, the partial kingdom. The partial kingdom covers about a thousand years of history and a pretty big chunk of the Old Testament itself. We said that in the promise to Abraham, there are three distinct elements. There's people, land, and blessing, and we're adding a fourth, a king. And so in order to kind of keep this straight in our head, we are looking at how God is keeping partially each one of these promises at one time and then looking how each one of these promises points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So we've already looked at God's people, how there will be a numerous people who are God's special possession chosen out of all the world. And that was from Genesis 12 to Exodus 18. We then looked at the promise of God's rule and blessing. And this is from Exodus 19 through the end of the book of Leviticus, looking at how God blesses his people by giving them a law and by dwelling amongst them in the tabernacle and how Jesus fulfills the law for us and is our sacrifice, our high priest, our tabernacle, where we meet God. And so that brings us to the third element of God's promise, and that is God's place or a land for his people. So here's the promise, Genesis 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. This land was the literal land of Canaan or Palestine or modern day Israel, that strip of territory, not much bigger uh, than the state of Tennessee on the Mediterranean coast. Now, as we have done in the first two elements, we will look at how the promise is partially fulfilled in the Old Testament and then take a look at how it points us forward to Jesus. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua and see how they develop this promise of God's people having a land. So the story of Numbers is a story of disobedience and delay. In Numbers 1 through 10, the camp of the people of Israel, they're still living at Mount Sinai. They've been there for a year. They're being organized and, and made ready to go on their journey. It should be a 14-day walk from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. It takes them 40 years. It takes them 40 years because they grumble, they complain, they doubt. And the book of Numbers is hard to read. Uh, it's frustrating, it's discouraging, and we might ask the question, why do we have these stories? And if you've asked that question, and I think if we're being honest, most of us have who've read through Numbers, you're not the first person. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, 
speaking of the story from the book of Numbers, he says, now these things took place and thus these things were written down as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I'm sure the apostle Paul, having been a good Jewish boy going to synagogue, he too had grumbled and wondered, why do we have numbers? And he knows, he knows why God has revealed it because we can look at their story and see it as our story. Now you might think, okay, Andy, that's, that's a bit of a bridge too far. How can the story of numbers be our story, right? We're not trapped in the middle of the desert. We're not, you know, journeying with a cloud of fire in front of us. You know, God's not feeding us with manna from heaven. Well, here's what I would say to you. If you have faith in Jesus, then you too, just like the Israelites, you've been set free from slavery. For them, it was physical slavery in Egypt. For us, it's spiritual slavery to sin. And you have been set free from slavery by a Passover sacrifice. For them, it was a spotless lamb, a year old. For us, it's the spotless son of God. It's Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus, you've been set free from slavery by a Passover sacrifice, and you're on a journey to the promised land. You have received many blessings from God, but you don't yet have them all. And we still look forward to our promised rest. So their story, friends, is our story. And we must make sure that we don't fail because of sin and unbelief. And we have to make sure that we keep trusting God until we reach our home. And that's where they failed. Now, I want to just take a moment and differentiate between two things, doubt and unbelief. Neither of these things are good, right? Like doubt is not a good thing. It's not a thing that we like long for, like, oh, I can't wait. I hope I get some doubt. Doubt is not a good thing. But doubt is not necessarily a sin. Doubt is just going to be part of a human existence, that we have been called to have faith in a God that we cannot see with our eyes. And we are going to wonder when things go wrong or when things take longer than we think, you know, is God real? Does God really care for me? Am I really forgiven? Does he really know what's best? And that's going to happen. Again, we don't celebrate doubt, but we can be honest that we have it. But just like cancer can metastasize, can go bad, and go from being benign into something malignant and, and deadly. Our doubt, if we don't deal with it, will metastasize and become unbelief. Doubt is when you say, can I? Can I trust? Can I believe? Unbelief is when you say, I won't. I won't trust. I won't believe. I won't obey. The people of Israel doubted and grumbled and complained and that doubt metastasized in the book of Numbers. And it goes from being, I wonder, can I, to I won't. And thus they stand condemned. And so there is much to learn. There are many warnings that if we are wise, we will take heed and we will not fall prey to the same trap. So that's the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy is blessing and curses. Deuteronomy is a farewell speech from Moses. He's been leading the people for 40 years. He knows he's not going into the promised land. And if I could sum up the book of Deuteronomy, it's Moses saying to the children of the adults who left Egypt, don't blow it like we did. Deuteronomy is given in this great format of an entire, this, the whole book is a conditional statement. The whole thing is an if then. Deuteronomy 28.1, Moses says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandments that I command you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But on the other hand, Deuteronomy 28.15 if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all these commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And the book of Deuteronomy leaves us kind of on a cliffhanger. What choice are they going to make? Are they going to choose faith and obedience or are they going to choose doubt and disobedience? 
and we know which choice they make. The next book in our story is the book of Joshua. And this is the story of a conquest, the conquest of the nation of Canaan, or rather I should say the nations that lived in the land of Canaan. So the story of Joshua is a story of power and conquest and victory. Not Israel's power, conquest, or victory, but God waging war against the people of Canaan. Multiple times throughout the story, if you've been reading straight through, and you can't miss it in Joshua, the people of Israel are commanded to destroy the Canaanites down to the last man. Men, women, and children, wipe them out. And if you are like me, if you're a human being with a heart, that command is going to bother you and you're going to have questions. And if you don't have questions, your unbelieving friends are going to have questions. How can you worship a God who commands this? Well, let me just remind you of three things. One, the people of Canaan were wicked. Almost every single command given in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy with regard to sexual morality or care for the poor or even being forbidden to practice child sacrifice, it's because the people who lived in the land of Canaan did those very things. They were wicked people. They were sinfully, sexually wicked. They were wicked to the poor. They were wicked to one another. They were wicked. Second, remember, they'd been given 400 years to repent. When God initially made this promise to Abraham, he says to them, Abraham, your your people are going to go into a land that's not their own. They're going to be slaves for 400 years because the iniquity of the Canaanites has not yet reached its full limit. They were given 400 years to repent and they refused and they simply spiraled downward and then and the people grew worse and worse and worse. Third, remember, the issue was not ethnicity. God doesn't have it out for this people group because of their ethnic identity. The issue is their heart loyalty. They do not worship Yahweh and God knows if the people of Israel just try to live alongside them, they are going to be led away and they're going to worship the false gods and be destroyed as well. And that's exactly what happened. I would also just remind you guys that this is a command given to the nation of Israel, which does not exist anymore. The ancient theocracy of ancient Israel does not exist anymore. And so no nation can grab a hold of these promises and say, well, based on Joshua, we're going to invade this land and wipe out this people. Absolutely not. But we are not ashamed of these commands. We're not embarrassed of these commands. This was not be God being grouchy or losing his temper. This was justice. And God chose the people of Israel to administer his justice. Now, the book of Joshua ends on a high note. Joshua 21, 43 through 45 says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. But there's also a hint and final note here of caution. Because Joshua 23, 12 through 13, Joshua warns the people. Again, he's been with them for almost 80 years now. He says, if you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord has given you. So the people have made it into the land, but how long are they going to be able to stay there given what we know about them? Now that's the partial fulfillment. And friends, how does this point us to Jesus? Well, Jesus His name in Hebrew is the same as Joshua. 
Just like Joshua leads the people into the promised land, Jesus leads us into our eternal rest. And he is the conquering hero. He is the captain of the Lord's army. He is the victorious warrior. And friends, the people of Israel were going to live in a nation that, comparatively speaking, was never going to be particularly large. But Jesus has won for us an inheritance, not just one nation or even just one continent or even just one planet. Jesus has won for us an inheritance. We get the entire universe. All that exists has been given over to Jesus and Jesus wants to share it with us and reign alongside of us as our brother as our hero, our conquering hero, as our God. It is truly amazing to think about. And here's what I would leave you with today. When you think about the new creation, when you think about heaven, no matter how good you think it's going to be, it's better. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. No matter how good you think it's going to be, it's going to be better. And I hope that thought makes you long for heaven like never before. It's going to be worth it. Every sacrifice in the end will have turned out to be no sacrifice at all because we will be with Jesus forever. He's won the victory and we get to enjoy the fruit. So friends, Lord willing, next time we come together, we'll look at how God keeps the promise regarding a king to rule over his people. But for now, take it and read. God bless. 